Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast fans. I want to tell you today, I'm very excited to talk to someone who I first met more than 20 years ago. True story. And let me just tell you a few of her accomplishments before I tell you her name. And I want to also tell you a story about when I met her because it changed my perception on a number of levels. So she has always been an advocate for disabilities and children. She has been an elementary school teacher, a middle school counselor. She has been the president and CEO of a national nonprofit, huge national nonprofit. And she has been a senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Education. But when I met her, she was the senior policy and domestic policy advisor to then President Clinton. And so her name is Carol Rasco. But I want to tell you, when I first met her, I was running a large nonprofit in Nevada, which has since gotten even larger, and was told by my board president and one of the senior um, and trusted board members that we were going to go back and meet with Carol Rasco because our organization was focused on children's issues in Nevada. There was talk about changing the whole, um, at that time, the what was called, let's just say it was welfare reform at that time. And there were a number of questions on the table about how would that impact the children and families in Nevada. And our organization had some thoughts about that because they were a leader in public-private partnerships. So we go back there. I have no idea what to expect. And we are in Carol's office in the White House and in walks Carol. And she is like so focused. She, but at the same time, really relaxed. And I remember before we walked in, we had a list of questions and a list of points we wanted to share with Carol and and to share our information and to learn from her. And it amazed me how much information she took in from three people that was able to give us information back in direction and then hooked us up so we could go over to the old executive office and talk with Tipper Gore and the staff over there, which was never on our agenda. So what I learned from Carol was there are really, really smart people working behind the scenes and working really hard all the time, whether or not they come to the limelight. And when we asked her to come to Nevada, She said, yes, she came out and helped us have conversations at the community level that helped our community think about what are the priorities for children and families. So, Carol, I have no idea if you even remember that, but I will tell you, it was like this mark in my timeline of things that went, wow, you know, there is access. I didn't have to push to get there, but I know it happens and it mattered. And it mattered to us and the children and families in Nevada. So I want to start by thanking you for that and for always being gracious. Um, the other thing you'll know once Carol starts talking, she has a really great accent, which I've always loved listening to her talk. So Carol, with that as a little bit about you and a long introduction about your impact on me as a piece, what would you like to add before we dive into the many questions I have for you? Well, let's start with the fact that this accent I have uh, comes from being born in South Carolina, living there only a short period of time, uh, but going back every summer. But then we moved to my father's home state of Arkansas. So I grew up with this accent. I don't even think about it. And you mentioned D.C. And let me just tell you that One of my first experiences after 
going to D.C. is that a very large contributor and well-known person in D.C., and probably a lot of your audience would know the name if I said it, which I will not, but he and his wife had a dinner party for me, and I could tell exactly what was happening because they wouldn't give the guest list to my staff, which is pretty traditional in Washington, and so I thought, they're trying to trip me up. And thank goodness I had already met most of those people, even if briefly. But when dinner was over, the host was walking me to the car and he said, now, Carol. And he was trying to put on his best accent because, quite frankly, he grew up in the South, as I did. He said, you know, we have people here in D.C. to whom I can refer you to get rid of that accent. And... I could not believe later that I came back with what I did, but it's important in D.C. to be able to come back and set your mark. And I said, you know, first name, we have people in Little Rock that could help you get yours back. And with that, he never said another word about the accent. And I may have just lost part of your audience because they say, Mm, she's being a little brash, but you have to stand your ground. I was not about ready to take time to lose the accent. I love the way I talk. As I say, I don't even think about it. But with that, let me say that for people like me going into the position I did, organizations like what you were leading in Nevada, uh, let me hand the compliments back because we were always trying to get people to understand as we developed policy that it wasn't a matter of just setting something up for one silo, the old silo uh, concept or in buckets or whatever you want to call it. We needed organizations that were going to recognize what we felt strongly about, that children are in the context of a family, whether it's their birth family or the neighborhood, or the gang that they've become part of, and that we have to accept that and and look at how we put the pieces together to make them all fit. So that will tell people a little bit about it. I will tell you, people were shocked that someone came to D.C. from a small state who did not go out of state to college and who did not have a PhD. Probably the most frequent question I was asked when I first went there, when I was being interviewed, or when people would get ready to come to meet with me, and you all did not, and I remembered that, they were eager to know why my PhD was not listed on my resume, and where I got it, and what it was in. And there is not one. There's a bachelor's, and a master's, and a lot of experience. Well, I appreciate that about you, but that would have never occurred to me to ask someone who was sitting where you were. Obviously, you got there, right? And you had some, <laughs> well, and you had some skill in history behind you. So, and I think what's important, though, for our audience, first of all, you're not going to turn anyone off by being brash because the title of the podcast is No Labels, No Limits. So, People are tired of being labeled and limited either by age or accent or whatever. They have things to contribute. Right. Go for being brash and honest. That's always the best policy. The other thing is that there are a number of folks, and especially now, things have changed in the economy. And 
um, also in how we connect and can learn now. And so PhDs sometimes are gotten received in the school of hard knocks and a lot of experience without letters that go with it. That's so, right. <laughs> just the thought about that. Well, before we jump, I mean, that's a huge thing. Like I met you, you're in the White House. But before that, I mean, you started out when you were an elementary teacher. Did you have plans like a, did you have a career path trajectory or did things evolve and you followed what made sense to you? How did you move through? Well, I started out in drama uh, because I love the arts and I love theater. And I wasn't so certain that I wanted to act. I thought it was fun. But so I started in drama and I will quickly say that I often uh, note to people with whom I'm visiting or with I'm working with that some of the best training I ever got were those two years of drama in college because we had such great instructors at the small liberal arts school where I was that they really took having you in drama courses to be far more than looking at an acting career. But they had certain courses they had to teach, of course. And so when they were teaching you about how do you get into a character, how do you begin this collection of actors putting something on and each of you getting into a character, how do you form then the collective atmosphere or unit that the plays to do? All of that was extremely valuable in everything I have faced since. When I changed majors, I realized what I really wanted to do was work with children and families. And a very wise professor said to me, if you are going to work with children and families, you need to first teach school. That is where children spend the bulk of their time. That is where there is the intersection between the family and community. And Carol, you need a teaching degree. And so I took that person's word and have always been very glad that I did. Or I think I would have been shocked at some of what I saw in classrooms. So I got that degree and did a double major in psychology to prepare for graduate school. And to be a counselor at that time in the schools, even though I knew I might do some private counseling, you had to have two years teaching experience. So I taught my two years and then I went back to graduate school in counseling and got that degree and then used the counseling degree for one year. And my surprise first child was born, a surprise child. And uh, I'll be very honest, I was not going to have children. I wanted to work with them, but I was not going to have them. But a surprise came along, and he's been a great educator of his mother, and we'll get into some of that in a moment, I think, you said. And then when I got ready and started thinking about going back to work, I had the opportunity to go into a a policy role in the governor's office for Governor Clinton. And that really helped bring together all those pieces I had done before, including my son's first six, seven years of life and all that I learned then. So the 
movement into policy, I kind of followed the lead. The The path before that, I had kind of made up my mind how I was going to do it. Well, I think what's interesting, and you mentioned that your son was actually a teacher, continues to be a teacher for you. Why don't you share a little bit about your son? Because I think that will frame also people's ability to understand how deeply you know what the issues and concerns of families are, especially when it comes around to challenges that you and your son and family have faced. Uh, Ham Prasco was born 45 years ago, and he came when they had predicted he would, but Hamp was born under five pounds, and basically uh, we were told as his parents We don't know if he'll make it through the first day or two. If we can have him in in the situation where he makes it the first six weeks, the chances are very good he will survive. But we have no idea what kind of uh, brain damage or other damage may have been done. And my uh, parents were there at the time. My father's a pharmacist in a small town. He's used to being with families when they get that kind of news and working with them. So with that, my parents and I looked at each other and said, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes here. Unfortunately, my son's father had a very, very difficult time. And I understood that because I knew him and his family. We grew up in the same town. And even though their back, the his father was from a medical family, he had a very difficult time with it. So it was kind of Carol and her parents that primarily pushed ahead at that point. Uh, Hamp made it. He stayed in the hospital intensive care nursery for three weeks, pulled out his own tubes and started feeding, which they weren't even sure he was going to be able to do. And I guess the best thing to say is that That was before we had infant intervention programs. Fortunately, they came along within two years. But I knew enough from my graduate work in in counseling and childhood development to know that we couldn't wait until there was a program. We had to start figuring out things to do. And so as I chose the doctors we went to, I would say to them, I'm not coming to you as an orthopedic surgeon because we know he's going to need help. He's been labeled cerebral palsy. I'm coming to you because I want you to be a partner in a program that we're going to put together for him until we get some pediatric uh, therapists around. We didn't even have a pediatric orthopedic person then, but I learned in calling around, not many states did. So we started. And I'll never forget the day the orthopedic surgeon looked at me and said, okay, my part of the partnership, piece of advice one, every time you change this child's diaper, you move every joint that is supposed to be movable and you move it every direction that it will move without harming him. I thought, okay. And I looked at him and I said, can you tell me the relationship between moving the joints and urination? He said, he just died laughing. He said, no, I've been thinking hard. 
what kind of gauge I could tell you because it is very important we keep his range of motion. He said, and it hit me, the thing you're going to do most frequently is change his diaper. So that's when you ought to do this range of motion business. Therapists I later had said, they were thrilled to have that piece of advice. It was one of the best pieces of advice they'd ever heard. So that was kind of the first eye-opener for me that this was going to be much like the creativity course I took in college as an elective, where they were really trying to get us to think outside the box. That was kind of a new term back then. And that's what that orthopedic surgeon did for me. And I'll tell you, uh, therapists, once we got pediatric therapists, pediatric orthopedic surgeons, they were all amazed that a HAMP's range of motion was so good. So it's just one of those examples where you start working together, and he really thought about it, and he realized that was the most important thing we needed to do from his field's perspective, and we did it. So we can talk more about everything that was involved in having him go to school, and he was in that first class of children covered by the federal law, 94-142, and our state law, which I worked very hard on both of them while he was young. But he is now 45. He moved into a group home the semester before he completed high school because you don't get openings very often in those. And we grabbed that one. He has worked in state government in three different departments. And a few years ago, looked at me and said, I'm ready for a break uh, from working in the state agencies and doing the mail. I like it a lot, but I'm ready for a break. And so we worked with Easter Seals where he lives and where he has gotten therapy since earliest infant intervention program we had when he was about two. And um, they have a training center it's not like the old workshops of old, but they actually take classes. And we decided to put him back in that because he was very excited about it. And so, you know, he sends me an email in computer class every morning and uh, we exchange things back and forth that way. But uh, he's doing very well. He uh, lives there in Little Rock in the group home where his father and stepmother live. Uh, my sister lives there and her children. And then my daughter, Hamp's sister, uh, Mary Margaret, uh, when she finished college and uh, some work experience outside of Arkansas, moved back there and married and has three sons. And they adore Hamp and he adores them. So Hamp has family there. Hamp is a very social creature. And he has friends. When I go to Little Rock, I'm amazed. If, if you go to an event like a basketball game or a football game with my son, be ready not to watch the event because it is an event-long receiving line. People see him from around the arena or the stadium. And so they come over and stand in line to say hi to him. And, and they always feel like they need to let me know 
how they know him and that they're not just coming to take advantage of him or something. And uh, it's amazing. Hamp knows a lot of people. Uh, he has a lot of people pulling for him and he's one great human being. It sounds like he's touched a lot of people just from his own personality and enthusiasm. Oh, absolutely. Carol, when you got that news or when you were first starting to deal with the doctor who, who didn't know, but was willing to go into and kind of have questions like how might we approach this? That's like front end of being a patient advocate in your case for your son. And were there other people doing that with and for you, or were you kind of out on a leading edge by yourself at that, at that point? Well, there were a group of people, two or three of whom I had met through other circumstances who did have children with disabilities that were much older than Hamp, and they had really been toiling in the fields for a long time, each of them a a different disability, and uh, none of them were cerebral palsy. But they got to that hospital right away uh, that week while I was still there, and then would come to see me while Hamp was still in the hospital, and I was I could go once a day and see him. But uh, they were very, very helpful as far as giving me the kind of backbone that I needed to build up and helping me prepare for the some of the obstacles I was going to encounter. They were beginning to work on advocacy for the federal law to be enacted and for Arkansas to go ahead and enact one. And so we became a team. And, you know, I joined this team already in place. They couldn't help so much with the questions I should be asking. For example, none of their children were going to need physical modifications of any kind like Hampwood, some of theirs were older, and they had, uh, one lady had actually sent her uh, deaf child off uh, to a private school out of state because she was getting absolutely nowhere and knew she didn't have time to waste. But to her credit, she continued to work in-state also for children that were going to come along. So One of the things we did besides our legislative advocacy, which was really my first time uh, to get that active in government, and it had been their first, and fortunately we had governors that were then very amenable to working with us, Dale Bumpers, David Pryor, who went on to become U.S. senators for Arkansas and senators that made a difference uh, for the country. So they were they were good in being patient with us. Let me give you a quick example of one thing we did. We realized that Arkansas did not have the money to really do the kind of even preliminary introductory work on disability that some of these regular classroom teachers were going to need when the new laws took place and we knew that there would be some children with disabilities that were in their classrooms part of the day and going to resource rooms the other and nobody was doing anything. So we put ourselves together and we got a little money from here, there, and I don't know where. Uh, We didn't have time to write grants really 
because this was getting ready to go into effect in less than a year. And we contacted some schools where we had heard of parents that were really worried about their children going into the classrooms. And so we set up a little program and we would call someone one of us would know in that school district and say we would be glad to come do training on a Saturday. It really needs to be a Saturday because we've got to get spouses or you know other working family members to keep our children so that we can concentrate on doing the program for you all. And so there were schools were calling us and there were too many schools calling. We couldn't help them all. But we were so basic. And because there was no money to go buy fancy materials, I will never forget, we bought hundreds of sandwich bags to take with us. And we were, one of our activities was to help these teachers understand that children that are visually impaired, it doesn't mean always that they can see nothing. And we knew that there were plenty of children like that that were going to enter their school. So we would have people fold it over once, put it over their eyes and try to read something. That was how basic the training was. But you can't imagine the thank you notes and the tearful hugs and things that we got not only that day, but even more as they actually started bringing the children into the classroom. And I will say we would give each other boost all the way driving to those uh, sessions because we'd say we can't believe we're getting ready to use folded over sandwich bags but nobody had been able to give us better ideas and we said we're just going to do it and that team of us we can go now three years and not see each other we get together we don't just have conversations we're planning the next iteration of what somebody needs to do do you share that with them after you've planned it for them yes (laughs) (laughs) that's wonderful well and the The thing that's so powerful about using something simple like the folded over sandwich bag, once somebody experiences what even a modest shift in vision can mean to somebody, it opens, no pun intended, it opens your own eyes to what you take for granted, right? Absolutely. When you're saying, can you grab that for me? Or even color impaired, you know? And so you're saying, is that, you know, I've had people say to me and my husband as he goes, is can you grab my green water bottle? I'm thinking the green one's mine. Those are both different colors and you can't tell, right? I mean, it's those things and the color is not an issue, but it's that assumption we make about other people. Right. And I don't think we always have to make things such a huge production to get impact and help people shift how they think and be willing because you also demonstrated for them that they can be creative at their own school. Absolutely. And we knew that, we had limited funds. We knew they had virtually no funds yeah. and were already spending a great deal of money of their own getting children fed and having a pair of shoes. And I don't say that to go back to the stereotype of that Arkansas gets often, do you all wear shoes? We just all know that almost every part of the country has a very poor area within their community or town that there are children that poor. And so we felt like it was going to be showing them 
something they could even use with the other children once they reached a point that the child with the disability could be comfortable with it, or you do it while that child's at the resource room. So Carol, I want to follow up with that because that's at a time when I was in school also, or actually I'd probably gotten out of high school by then, but not far. And I remember when I was in elementary school with kids, like we would start maybe part of the day, but then they would go to a resource room. So there wasn't the inclusion necessarily. And then when there was, it was not wholesale inclusion, right? So what was the situation at that time for HAMP? And then as you worked through your state level and then national level, because that has shifted for the priority for inclusion and it's still people come kind of, not everybody comes with open arms to including people who are different. Well, when HAMP got ready to go to school, he was in that first class in the in the country, first age group that was covered by the law. And I was determined, since we had a lot to learn from HAMP and about HAMP, before we would know in later grades how to really go with him. Uh, but I was determined that when he went for that first experience in schools, it was going to be an inclusive experience. We did hold him back a year before we started him in kindergarten in public school. We did not have preschool then. And he went to a preschool program at Easter Seals that was really there to work very hard with the children to prepare them to go to the inclusive situation. They've even made that program inclusive now. But at the time, we knew that we were not going to count that a detriment, that it was a preschool only for children on camp because there was a lot we needed to make sure we had at least tried to do with him before he went into that classroom. So I started visiting schools and just called the administration and said I'd like to visit schools. I was going to be looking for my son who had some disabilities, and I kind of downplayed what it was, and they didn't ask because, boy, they didn't want to know. And I started visiting schools, and I was just more or less horrified by what I saw because they kept telling me that he really should take advantage of the wing at a school called the orthopedic wing that was formed years before it was, you know, the responsible thing to do to send them to school. Well, the first thing I saw was that they said, yes, the children eat with the other children. They meant, yes, they go to the lunchroom after every other child's out of it. And the only way they can get there in a wheelchair is through the kitchen, navigating by boiling pots of water and all of this. So that that was the orthopedic wing. Then I visited the therapy program there. And the therapist never stood up. My first question when I left, I asked someone if he had a disability. I thought maybe he couldn't stand up. No, he just sat there. And every child that came in walked the bars, which is a common therapeutic tool. But he never raised or lowered the bar, depending on their height or what they could do. And I asked him about that. And he said, no, I figure most of them can learn to adapt. I thought, oh, this is, you know, we'd had some incredible therapists by that point. So I knew when we went to our first meeting to start talking that would end up in an IEP that we were probably in for a good time. Well, we went 
my husband and I, and there were 15 people in the room. And so the head one, the head of special ed for the school district said she would like to get started and just kind of plunged into stuff. And I said, excuse me, you're 15 people that apparently are going to influence my son. I'd like to know your name and what you do just so we can truly be a team. They were so offended. But, um, you know, we worked it through and some of them became my very good friends. And I could begin to see that as too often happens, it was the top. It was the superintendent that was basically holding it all back. And we went through agony. Now, things improved when I put the word out, the name of the person that was serving as my advisor in all this. And it was a young woman who had moved to Little Rock with her husband who was going to teach in the law school. She is a lawyer and she was working for legal aid. But I knew from meeting her personally, and we'd had dinner several times, her graduate work was she did her capstone project on the closure of Pennhurst, the big institution in the Northeast that was closed because it was so inappropriate. Well, they knew who she was, and there was a a noticeable shift, even though she was not going to the meetings with me, when they heard that she was serving as my advisor uh, because they were scared to death of her. They knew her reputation, and she and I would laugh our heads off when I would go home and tell her the kinds of things they were beginning to shift on. But it's very interesting because when that superintendent left and the new one came, and by then we had settled into school, the day his resignation was announced, there was a knock at my door. And I went to the door, and there was the special ed supervisor, and she was in tears. And we had become friends. At that point. I couldn't figure out what it was. And she came, I invited her in, and she said, I just had to come tell you they've announced the superintendent has resigned and he is leaving. And she said, what I could never tell you while he was here is he let us know to do what we had to do to stay within the bounds of the law, but no more for you. And she said, life's going to get easier because they've known he was going to resign and we know who's coming in. And I think it's going to be much better, Ms. Rasco. And she has remained a friend. Uh, about every five years, we do a pretty big reception for Hemp's birthday to thank people and let them celebrate with him. And that, that lady, even though retired, gets invited. Of course, everybody gets invited if from the intensive care nurses to others today that work with him but she always comes and you know his first teacher at that school had absolutely no training in special ed but she was a great teacher and she knew how to help him we did have a resource teacher as well Uh, she is still a good friend she is in a a nursing home assisted living dementia is setting in but she always recognizes Hamp, and they have a great time talking. So there were horrible struggles just getting a seatbelt on the bus or a lock for the wheelchair was 
a six-month task that I spent night and day on. And I'd call the special ed supervisor and say, I've just gotten word from a friend. She's passed the bus and she can see Hemp's head rolling side to side on it. And the special ed supervisor would go get in her car and go chase down the bus and document that they didn't have the belt. So there were lots of little things like that in addition to, you know, going to school board meetings and going to uh, state meetings um, with regulators. But he went through and through the sixth grade was in an inclusion type setting with an hour of resource room a day. When he went to junior high, we had gotten put in place a program called community-based instruction. This was where they worked with the kids on the domains of their personal grooming, washing their clothes, beginning to do that kind of thing, taking them out in the community to start job exploration, learning how to use buses, how to budget your money. And uh, they, because we lived near the school, they came to our house two days a week for the kids to practice some of those skills. They had a bed in the classroom to learn about making beds and that kind of thing, but they would come to our house. My, my daughter, who's seven years younger than her brother, she was very sad when that was all over because she didn't have to make up her bed those days. But, but we found that program very helpful because it was right there in the public school, but unlike that wing that they had had prior, the principals at those schools really included the kids uh, that were in the CBI, and they were eligible for Beta Club if they made their goals. Uh, they went to all assemblies. They participated in them. They got to sit in some classes if it was a topic and they were a real history freak, uh, as he used to put it, and wanted to go sit in that. But for me, and I'll get tears or a quaky voice here, but they forewarned me that I was going to get a call from him because I was in D.C. in the White House by this time. He called me one day and he said, I'm going to speak at graduation. And I said, oh, my goodness, what an honor. I thought you had to try out. Did you try out? No. The cheerleaders and the football players, that's how he recognized some of them. It happened to be the senior class officers. Uh, they came to me and said they voted that they wanted me to speak because they learned so much from me. And it was really touching so we, his uh, friend aide in high school who came by and took him to the restroom uh, on a schedule, uh, it was a, his, a person in his grade, but not in his special ed classes. Uh, he walked alongside Hamp that night. Uh, he stood on the stage with him in case Hamp dropped the speech or whatever. But Hamp's teacher had worked with him. I told her how I had helped him put together speeches in the past. And she said, well, he wants to do this one on his own and I'll use your question method. So one of the questions she asked him so they could include it in the speech was, uh, what are you going to miss the most? And 
typical of many kids that age, he said he was really going to miss the good-looking cheerleaders. And, of course, the audience just roared. My father, the loudest of all. But it was a very, it was a very touching moment to be in a coliseum with all those kids. And you could have heard a pin drop. And that's amazing in itself at a graduation that big. But he really made an impact on them. There are young people who kind of follow the five-year birthday thing that will often call me and say, are you giving a birthday party for Hamp? And I'll say, yes. And when they were in college, they'd say, well, I'm going to drive home if you do it on a Saturday or Sunday because I want to be there. I didn't even know some of them knew him. So Hamp really didn't know that a lot of this stuff in the background was going on. He just went to school and enjoyed it. Uh, He's very social. He loved being around all the people. But he was also one of his best advocates for himself because he followed our lead. He was very amenable about things. But, you know, about the third day in a row at the workplace, if the regular aide that was to come by and help him navigate the bathroom didn't come. He'd go call the president of the private nonprofit group that provided the aides and say, my aide didn't come in. So he's, we, we tried hard and I think it's, it was one of our success stories. Uh, He knows how to self-advocate as well. Okay, so that is a really great example of advocacy and how it could take you, like when you said you just followed your lead as it went through in the state of Arkansas, right, and where it led right. to policy for others. Prior to hopping on the live portion or the recorded portion of this, we started talking about two points in your life that you had really big, tough decisions to make. And since I first met you while you were in the White House, I'm wondering if you would share with us what that decision point was when you got called in the middle of the night to make a big decision and the takeaway of that for you. Um, it also has some parallels to what we're facing in our nation right now. Okay. Well, domestic policy, when go- then Governor Clinton asked me to go to D.C. To, to fulfill this role, he was actually splitting the domestic economic policy advisor single position into two. And Bob Rubin, who was the uh, economic advisor at that point before he went on to become secretary of the treasury, he and I just kind of played it by ear and, and took task as they came. Some were very obviously his to do, some obviously mine. But we had been in the White House a very short time. I think it was only three weeks, but it may have been longer. A call came at 2 a.m. in the morning that a car was on the way to pick me up to come to the White House to the Situation Room, which I'd never been in at that point. I didn't need to have been in it at that point. That we had a decision to make about boat people and the next 30 minutes, and they were getting ready to cross the water from being the national security advisor's purview, so to speak, and they would become mine within the next 30 minutes. And as they entered our waters, I had a decision to make. As I shared with you earlier, D.C. is a very 
unique place. I knew that the confidence with which I walked into that room and helped lead the discussion toward a decision was going to make or break me for the rest of my time there. And I wasn't about ready to say to them, what are boat people? I had worked in a landlocked state. Boat people for us were people who lived on the river, some of them wealthy, but many of them not. And that they kind of would go on to abandon boats and live. However, I did not say that. And I knew that what these people were really probably talking about were people that I had heard about on the news and things uh, that were seeking asylum or something like that. So I said to them, I assume you have uh, briefing materials that are coming out in the car and the brief time it takes to get there, I will be able to look at those. They said yes. And of course, when I got there and the room full of military and uh, national security people was you know, there were probably 12 people sitting there. They'd probably been studying this all night, but that was their job. And then if the people crossed the line in the water to where it would be domestic, that's when they call me. And I looked at the stuff going in and I thought, this is going to be interesting because I think I know the one choice we have out of the three they give here. But They made their presentation very quickly, and I asked a few questions, and I said, it appears to me the the decision to be made is option, and I don't remember if this was first, second, or third in the briefing memo, but it is one that will keep us from having to set a precedent of accepting every boat that comes this particular route, but it gives us the best assurance that when these people board the plane that Mexico is willing to provide and fly back to their country, that they are not going to have their lives taken immediately. And they said, we believe that is the case. And so I said, let's move. And they said, you're the one that's worked with the president. I mean, this was very, very early in the administration. Do you feel it's something you need to discuss with him? And I said, no. I felt that confident about I look back on it now and think I must have had lots of good information in front of me that I didn't even feel I needed to discuss it with him. But I I did not feel I needed to at all. I felt like just from having been there three weeks, we were going to have so many issues that were weightier and that it was really going to fall to me to make some decisions like that. But that really was one of the the toughest in the sense that there were human lives on the line. And I knew that from what I was reading. So it was a night to remember. Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Welcome back the second part of my interview with Carol Hampton Rasco. When we left the first part of the interview, Carol had just finished telling us how three weeks into her position at the White House, she found herself in the middle of the night having to make a life or death decision in 45 minutes, and she did it. 
So join me again as we finish our discussion with Carol. The thing also about that, Carol, is you didn't have the luxury of saying, let's wait, I need more information. I mean, you had to go with the best information you had at the time. Right. And when people, so I'm going to take it down from a not a life or death situation, but oftentimes I've I know that it's more comfortable to say, well, let's wait till we get more information and keep pushing things versus saying we need to start something somewhere. You know, what's our best, least worst option sometimes is the only question. So that did take a lot of guts and hoods, but now I know how you walked into the room later when I met you and you were like, this is nothing. I do this all day, every day. You know, I can track what you guys are doing. I don't even have to think about it. So that answered that question for me. Well, and it's it's also a good lesson in that, yes, you, you, there are going to be a lot of situations where it is okay to keep gathering the information before a final decision. But as I used to tell staff, we also, in the meantime, if we do have the luxury of some time, need to be making some concrete plans, even if it's with options. And that was a good lesson for me in in transferring that over to this issue of let's be making some options because when I later at Riff faced the the loss of the big sum of money, you don't wait until you absolutely know it's signed in ink. You're gonna lose it. You've got to be making some contingency plans. So I'm going to t- take you to Riff in a second. I wanted to ask you a question without really wanting to get too political about it. I'm wondering, and I, I know that you explained to me previously how once you're on the outside of any administration and that it's politics, it's not like being mean, but it's just you become persona non grata. But in our state, we just we have a new governor and one, you know, so there is that transition of the teams. And I know for me, when there's that much knowledge, one of um, the governors, his chief of staff, after 45 years, I think he said 45 years, 45 minutes, and 45 seconds, like retired, right? But just this guy who's been a big advocate in Nevada and for children and families over the years. And I'm wondering if you know or have experienced where there are opportunities that people actually take them and reach back and say, hey, I know we may have different political parties or different viewpoints, but can get past either the label of the politics or the ego of the politics to say, hey, Carol, we may be on different sides of this issue, but I do want to know what you know, because I don't want to have to learn what you know the hard way. Do you see that happening in politics or any chance of that happening? Well, I've certainly seen it uh, in the past, but as of right now, with what I see in states that I know much about it all, or at the national level, it's it's not there to the degree it was when we were in office. And I don't want to sound like I'm singing that song, you know, uh, it's so much worse now and they're not calling on us. I mean, it's not, are they calling on me, but do I see them calling on other people? And I've had that discussion 
uh, with Dale Bumpers before he passed away. And I've had that discussion with David Pryor, both of whom had been governors in Arkansas and had wonderful administrations. And then, you know, were senators. And personally, I think one reason they both ended up leaving the Senate and not running for one more term was that both the loss of collegiality and the ability to learn from one another, regardless of the political labels within the body they were serving, but also what they saw happening along those lines outside just the Senate. And I think it's very sad. And I know how much I learned from calling on people that had served in previous administrations in varying roles, but especially in topic areas that we were working on. There was no one uh, precisely that had had my position, but some of the people that had had the economic domestic policy, Bob Rubin and I would meet with them together some. But in particular, calling on people that maybe had had top positions in HHS uh, back when that was health and human services and not Homeland Security, and people that had worked in the environmental field or had worked in immigration, uh, those kinds of things. Calling on people that have had lead roles in that at the White House or in agencies, I don't know how I would have done it without them. And I don't know what people do now because you don't hear at all that there's that much of that kind of thing going on. No, but I do hear people questioning it, you know, and in meetings I've been in where people will say, well, how come so-and-so or this agency is not doing that? But I mean, some of the questions are very good questions, but they're not asked in a public forum because the person asking them, because they're an employee of a governmental agency, would be seen as out of line with that administration. Right. right. I mean, it's self-limiting behavior that doesn't serve, but there are brilliant people in places to learn from. And sometimes we just have to figure out who's the best person next down the ladder Uh, that has that background and can go in there and really help and and or make themselves available and the other key thing you have to do oh the games we all play but sometimes that's how we get done what's needed and if that's what I had to do when Hamp was growing up I I can play the games with the best of them sometimes you have to find out who is a key supporter of the governor, of the president, or that is a key supporter that is well-known by the person that, that needs to hear from someone? And you have to get that person to make the introduction and go to the meeting and be there as things get started. And, you know, I think of a woman that worked in the... Uh, second George Bush administration and a mutual friend that brought us together. And we just decided that since we both were not on people's radar, I could walk in a restaurant and most people didn't know who I was and she could do the same. And we got together for dinner once a month 
and talked about I was in riff by then and we we did a lot of good stuff I think but it was real low-key and she knew that I thought it would be bad if she mentioned my name when she would bring up ideas in meeting. I had no pride of ownership, and I knew they'd be de- dead if she said, Carol Rasco told me about X. So I said, just act like you thought of it or that you learned it from some good Republican friend. Similarly, I tried to reciprocate in the sense that I was, when Katrina hit, I had just great empathy for the people in the White House. I knew exactly what they were going through. Not that we went through a Katrina, but I I knew that they you know that it was just maddening and when I saw how poorly all of that was going from the state level and the federal level, I called her and said I have one tiny thing to offer. I've talked to lots of our publishers at Riff. We are already on the fourth day of this storm getting all kinds of calls at Riff about the hundreds of children that are showing up in new schools in states outside Louisiana. And these people have Riff distributions coming up. And you know, these Riff folks, they love Riff and they want every child to get those books. And they're asking me, what in the world do we do? And I said, I've talked to the publishers and they're ready to drop ship books in there overnight. But I really want you all to get the credit for working with us because it's at least one small measure that will show a human side of trying to meet the needs of these kids in these schools that are going to school and they don't even have a change of clothes. They had to leave so quick uh, with their families and will at the same time make a big deal about sending books to the Superdome. And so we did. She and I stayed in the background. We neither one went to the presentation or any of that, but you know, they needed a win. They needed a win badly. So we learn how to begin to help each other on those kinds of things. But often it takes, you know, some political skill and knowing how to get introductions made to people, even if you have to meet in the middle of the night. Well, that and also not caring who gets the credit. I mean, those really have to go really focused on the kids or helping that administration gain credibility in that moment and have a win. Then you do it for those reasons, not because somehow it's going to be a feather in your cap. Right. So let's talk about RIF. And RIF is reading as fundamental. And for folks who might not know that, I don't know who might not know that since it was such a long time agency, but Carol, going and running a national organization, even with all of your experience, right, and handling things, that's a different role. You are now the president and CEO of a national nonprofit organization, which you grew to be even bigger. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and then also the when you had your crucible moments there as well and what that meant for you? Well, it was certainly the uh, probably the happiest job in many senses that I've ever walked into just the the early going because Riff was so well loved around the country 
people were eager for me to come see the great things they were doing, and they were doing great things. The little bit of a damper that was put on it initially uh, was we were in one of those great reading wars then, uh, how you teach reading. And, of course, I had been through that to an extent doing America Reads Challenge the last four years of the Clinton administration. And most people understood that I was coming from a point that I wanted what was best for children. And that from the RIF perspective, we were there to meet the need of books in the home, books for ownership, which many children did not have. And that the teaching of reading, I was leaving to the schools. We were making no comment on that. So that one, we, I think, was probably one of the easier flashpoints when I was at RIF because I had a track record there when I'd been at America Reads. I wasn't getting in the middle of it. And, but having been a teacher, I felt like I could say with even greater confidence, you know, this is a child by child issue of what you do, what the child needs. So, that one we got through pretty well, but, you know, just keeping your finger, you know, we were in all 50 states. We had all these places. Some of them had trouble raising their match money, of course. And then there was the internal stuff. I was left and I knew I was walking into this. The board asked me to keep the number two person for a while. They felt he would have a great deal to offer. And, you know, it turned out he hoped that I was just going to go out and make speeches and let him run it. And there were a lot of things there that needed to be changed to maximize what we could do across the country. So that was an internal issue that uh, took a while to resolve. And he did end up staying two to three years, which is about how long they had asked me to keep him. And it wasn't the worst thing I've ever been through by far. It just was interesting to work around. But I, I felt very good about the kind of things we were beginning to do because uh, in the early years, because my concern when I was going out to visit places was that, yes, the books were getting in the hands of the children, but I felt like there was more Riff could do to make those books even more meaningful. And so, you know, we really tried to work on that. Uh, we tried to work hard on the issue of forming partnerships with other literacy groups. Talk about, I, I was just flabbergasted when, someone said, I just saw that you had a meeting set up with the head of X. Why are we talking to them? I said, why would we not? We may have a child that's being served by four different literacy groups and three children over here in another school that are getting nothing. We need to be looking at this kind of thing, whether we can really solve it or not. So there was this issue of do we talk to other groups? Before you talk about that, how did you, was that an issue internally where staff were uncomfortable with it? Was it a policy or board issue or was it just 
community, like, no, we only want to support Rip. We don't want to tie ourselves or link to other folks. The biggest part of it was staff because the the previous administration had felt that Riff was above doing that kind of thing. And I knew that for a fact because I was a pretty had a pretty good friendship before I went to Riff and continued to with my predecessors. So I'd heard him talk about it and I acted like I had not heard that when I got there. But I began to see it in young and old. And it bothered me the most in the young people that were there essentially as grants managers. They had assigned area states or groups of states that they were seeing that this money for the books uh, went to. And I felt like I had to turn that around because I didn't want them to say, oh, I worked at RIF five years and here's what I learned about not working with other groups. I didn't want them to leave thinking that's the way it ought to be. So that was really the biggest issue. The board, when I first went there, was not uh, an active, functioning, uh, contributing in the way of buying into a real mission and the kinds of things that needed to be done. I mean, as long as I kept the books balanced, they were happy. And we, after I'd been there about a year and really saw that as one of the things going on, we had a, a long session one day on that is not enough. And they were great and were ready to be supportive, but they had not been asked previously to kind of take it another step. So, and and I thought that was probably the case, but uh, some of them had been on the board since RIF started. And when I went there, RIF was getting ready to celebrate. We had just come off celebrating, I guess, their 30th or 35th, because I left in their 50th year. So uh, they'd been there a long time. And there was no such thing as board term limits. We did a lot of work about that and redoing how the board uh, functioned because we did have two or three that were not just sit back, but who had desk at RIF and were there with some frequency. So it it was mixed, but the majority of the board had not been called on to give money nor to help in other ways. So I asked that for a specific reason because I know a number of the nonprofits at a local level, they will say that same thing, right? It's like right. The board's not engaged. So two things. One is sometimes we don't ask people to step up and they're capable and willing. Um, and part of it is the infrastructure, the structure, not even the infrastructure and the expectations haven't been clear from the beginning. But I just wanted to note that even a huge national nonprofit faces the same capacity issues as a smaller one might. Absolutely. I mean, one day at a board meeting, I very innocently asked. I did not know because I had not asked anyone on the staff first. I just said, how long has it been since any of you have been to a a RIF uh, distribution at a school? I'd love to be in touch with you and help you know when they're going to be. It wasn't a matter of how long had it been. We had board members who had been on the board more than two years who had never been to one. 
So, and they did not live outside the D.C. area. And so, yes, it's the many of the same things. And of course, the groups that I was forming partnerships with, other literacy programs, it wasn't just so RIF and those groups could work together and avoid duplication and all that. It was a support group, as far as I was concerned, for those of us that were at the head. Well, and that means you have to be willing to share, right? Information, the struggles, all of that. I was struck early on in your conversation about you formed a support group around you and one formed around you when Hamp was just born, even though there was just three of you and then others joined. And and that whole thing of support and sharing and helping kind of seems to be a, a thing through your career. Yes. So... In have you seen that change now that networks or people aren't living as close or and things are much more virtual now? Or do you see that same kind of linking a possible and in place today around you? Oh, it's still there. I haven't formed one yet about retirement because most people thought when I retired um, in September of 2016 that I probably was going to collapse and not know what to do. People have been floored that I can still function. I am not on any committee, any board. Uh, Of course, I went off all boards when I went to RIF, uh, which was not uncommon for the heads of national groups, of course. But my board, having had a real problem with that in in the past, with the head of the group being on so many things that RIF probably suffered some, uh, asked that I resign from everything but church membership. <laughs> so that that was not a problem, and Riff needed that kind of time and attention. But I guess I don't feel like I need one yet in retirement, in that I still maintain strong friendships, even if virtually, uh, with many of the people that I've I've had as kitchen cabinets or groups around me in the past. So the emails still fly, but at least now they're not always full of, I'd love to chat, but. How nice is it, that? So I've got, I want to change my wrap-up questions. I'm asking you to put on a different hat. Now, your grandkids call you Gigi? Yes. Okay. So I want you to wear your Gigi hat. Okay. And picture your grandkids and think about the, so far, the life you've had so far, because like you said, you're not at a loss for things to be doing and you're traveling. What advice, first of all, how old are they? And what advice would you give them now about just approaching life so that they achieve what they're able to do in life or what they want to do? Well, uh, they are 10, 7, and almost 3. He'll be 3 in a week when I will be there for the birthday. And uh, he is very, very excited about turning 3. I think first and second birthdays were just kind of a blur to him, but he is ready for this one. And, uh, of course, I adore them, and they're precious, and all those things that we grandmothers say. I didn't know that I would ever be uh, so taken by how I felt about that first child being born, the one that he was barely brought into his mother's arms, 
for the first time, and she was handing him to me saying, I saw a book in your purse. You're ready to read to him because I was at Riff then. So we're in her room where he was born, and I'm reading to that child when he's an hour and a half old. So uh, we, we continued that with each of them. Well, you know, what, what I really have tried to do more than anything so far is what my grandparents did for me. They were such a key part of my life. Uh, we lived on the same block, but they traveled a lot. So it wasn't like they were there every day. But I would say, looking back, my grandmother did two, the two big things she did for me and for my sisters. She and my grandfather gave us experiences that were just incredible. Uh, my parents did as well. But my grandparents, because they loved to travel, they would take two of us at a time. They never took all three girls at one time. I think they were brave to take two. But my grandfather was the quiet one, and but very, very observing. But on the trips, he was primarily the driver, and he, he would come out with things only every once in a while advice or how to look at something. But my grandmother's, I think her probably overarching goal in those experiences was to have us girls see that there are a lot of different types of people and ways uh, in this world. There are different, many, many different ways to do things and that you have to be willing to try them. And then she would always say, like, I think the first time I really remember her saying it was she was an amateur photographer and she carried all kinds of cameras and she put cameras around my grandfather's neck. I, he wouldn't have known how to take a picture around my sister that was on that trip with me, our necks and her neck. She had Arkansas press credentials and she'd saved all the old ones because she did some freelance writing. She'd put those around her neck. And we walked into the Quebec Parliament where they spoke French and she spoke no French. And she got us on the floor of Parliament to sit and listen. And I said afterwards, how did you really get us in there? Because you and that man weren't speaking the same language. I mean, I was in elementary school. I said, I don't understand how you did it, Ned. She said, Carol, I have found that if you put on your best manners and always wear a smile and you point to your wonderful grandchildren, she said, if they're with you or whatever you're doing, if you just remain calm and wear a big smile, you can just do a lot of things in life. And as we got older, those lessons became much deeper and she would use something other than just a smile. Uh, it became your sense of humor and calmness about it. And you're going to get through doors. And I was so glad she lived to see me go to the White House. She didn't get to come up there because she was too ill. But those that basic keep the smile, the sense of humor, and then just calm yourself before you go in to do something like that. It'll work. And it did. I think about the best chief of staff I worked under 
in my experiences. And the overall best was Leon Panetta, who had been in Congress from California. And since then, he has held many cabinet roles and stepped in when presidents needed him. He is tough. He is smart. But what stands out the most is just his sense of humor and humanness. And it was just so effective. And I I asked him one day if he had a grandmother that taught him some of that. And he said, yes, how did you know? And I said, I just feel like that's where I got that part of me was mid saying, wear that smile and calm yourself. On that note, I'm going to end our interview because I don't think you could have given us a better piece of advice, whether we're your grandkids or anybody else. So from the bottom of my heart, Carol, I know it took us a while to get this scheduled. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time. And I, you have made an impact on my life. So I just want to give that back to you and, and just thank you. Well, you are so welcome. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a No Labels, No Limits, and No Excuses life.